Welcome to the Kickstart Podcast, where we highlight the stories of how professionals kickstarted and navigated their very successful careers. My name is Preston, and on this episode, we have the pleasure of hosting someone who worked in both software engineering and product at phenomenal companies like Dropbox and Goldman Sachs, founded multiple companies throughout the years, including a venture firm, and is also a Forbes 30 under 30. Today, he's the co-founder of Lentable, the first platform for providing wealth-building loans. Sheridan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Pumped to be here, and you pitched me better than I pitched we got to get you on the team. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So I guess a great way to get started, Sheridan, is just for those who don't know who you are, unfamiliar with your background, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I can give like, a, you know, I guess 60 second. And then if you want to dig more into it, you know, more than happy to. But yeah, I mean, I think the way to summarize my story, um, I'm just serial entrepreneur. So I've been doing startups since I was a little kid. The initial nexus point for that, I uh, got into Northwestern when I was 15 and needed to figure out a way to kind of like help support my parents because they were going through some financial hardships at the time. Yeah. So I started like a hedge fund that bought and sold sneakers and tickets and apparel. Then I went to a platform called Ulti, helping people submit their uh, essentially non-accredited investors access private equity funds. Afterwards, helping people submit their rental payments to boost their credit. I ran a marketplace to have help tattoo artists and people looking to get tattoos, get connected. So I've really just done startups across like the entire spectrum of things. And I think recently it's really converged on this uh, focus point around fintech. You know, I grew up kind of like low income black family on food stamps, saw a lot of the complexity of kind of managing money. Also really just like loved math and just felt like a phenomenal opportunity to both build a business that was really large that could make a lot of money while also helping people do so. Yeah. So I, th I think that'd be like the simplest way to kind of summarize my story. Thank you for that. And so much to unpack there. I want to take a step back and you know, you've mentioned obviously going to Northwestern at 15, which is obviously deserves a whole podcast on its own, but taking a step back even further for someone yeah. like yourself who considers himself to be a serial entrepreneur, you said that your entrepreneurial pursuits, your passion started out childhood. Was it your parents? Like what inspired yeah. you to kind of get onto this entrepreneurial train or were you always very entrepreneurial yeah. um, from the start? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, um, if anything, my parents are probably a cautionary tale of entrepreneurship. Uh, and I want to preface that with saying I am immensely grateful for my parents. Like if it wasn't for them, the amount of work they had to put in with me to kind of get me to where I'm at is immense. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my dad, I think, one thing I remember like very vividly from being a kid, my dad was always doing different companies. And a lot of those companies would just fail, uh, you know, fail flat on their face. And this wasn't the kind of like Silicon Valley failure where it's like, oh, you know, you're Adam Newman, you just raised a billion dollars. And now someone wants to go off after you failed your company and give you another hundred million. This was a, hey, we're taking out a mortgage on the house to go start this retail business. At the time, they were doing something called Kiwi Paper. That company failed. Great. Now we've now we're two hundred thousand dollars in debt. We can't open up a credit card. But, you know, the solution we see to this is like not. Uh, what's it called not, not getting a job it's like doing another startup and i think one thing i remember very vividly as a kid my mom was always like come on you got to get a job like you got to do something like that you know my dad would get into a new startup and my mom's like ah shit okay guess that means i need to do this startup now too uh because you know that's just like the typical story for like most most american entrepreneurs that's what entrepreneurship is it isn't building this like tech company that's unprofitable for a long period of time and then maybe goes to ipo it's doing this kind of small business so for whatever reason i saw all of that all of the trials and tribulations and hardship of that but i think i had such a deep fundamental profound respect for that just act of creation it was so clear to me that you know, for better or for worse, this was something that my dad fundamentally loved and he cared about so much. And I think that that passion definitely stuck with me. There was also, I think, a, a big thing from kind of childhood is my dad, more so than anyone else I've ever met, kind of had this belief of, I could do anything. Uh, and I think like when a lot of parents say that to their kids, they're like, yeah, you know, like you can be successful, you can be famous. But my dad very genuinely believed like, hey, if you want to go to Harvard at 12, 
you can go to Harvard at 12. All it is, is just a, a matter of work. And it's a matter of kind of what you do. And it's a matter of you putting in the time. Um, so like, even when I got into Northwestern at 15, I remember it was an interesting uh, kind of experience because it wasn't necessarily like a good thing. I think uh, the thing we were always talking about was me going to Harvard at 14. So Northwestern at 15 <laughs> kind of just felt like a, I mean, I, I know that sounds very pretentious and it's not to say that it isn't it isn't a big deal but that was really the belief like my dad truly did fundamentally believe that i could do anything i just needed to put my mind to it and it's amazing so throughout your childhood up until northwestern did you go to private public schools growing up were you homeschooled like and then you yeah. just you just essentially applied early and then you got in yeah so surprisingly enough i never went to private school i went to a public school the way that i was able to kind of graduate early from high school is i started taking high school classes when i was in sixth grade so when i was in sixth grade i taught myself pre-algebra algebra algebra two, algebra two trig and like geometry and then come seventh grade i was taking half my classes at high school come eighth grade all my classes at high school so i actually i i graduated with a like regular amount of coursework it's not like i um like i actually took all the classes you needed to be able to graduate that's amazing. So as you're growing older, you are clearly inspired by a huge force in your life, your father. And I think a lot of the things that you talked about are really the basic tenets of what this true entrepreneurship entrepreneur means, right? Having confidence, being able to be okay with chaos and being able to accept risk and even just having most importantly, a passion for just problem solving, right? Whatever yeah. happens, you, you create another solution for it. And I think that's amazing because it's, on one hand, it's easy to kind of hear about it but it's a complete different story to execute on. And I think the fact that you yeah. raised looking up to someone and you saw it time and time again, and you also realize failure is okay. It's part yeah. of the process. A lot of people would, you know, freak out if they try to start a business and they're like, I'm a yeah. quarter million dollar in debt. Now I need to go get a job. It takes yeah. a certain amount of people wired differently with a different kind of yeah. belief set to be like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I'm going to go back into it, build from scratch again, and then we'll solve problems. I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. And, and I think to to caveat the, the risk and failure thing a little bit too, w with my dad in a lot of cases, I'd say like he really shouldn't have done another start. Like at the end of the day, like like the, the final success outcome here was not that it worked out. Like it really did get to a point where like it continued to not work. He did not make money off it. And I have a, I want to be so clear, a absolute tremendous amount of respect for the perseverance. But like one thing you do need to realize at some point is like when to throw in the towel, when you need to figure other things out. I think the way that that's affected kind of my perception around startups though, I don't feel like anything I'm doing is really all that risky. And like, this is something I could talk about at length, but I mm. think, for example, I live in San Francisco. Uh, a lot of my friends went to Stanford or Stanford dropouts, yada, yada. When they think about risk in their startups, let's let's say the absolute worst case. Let's say, you know, they raise a million dollars, which like that in and of itself is already crazy. Like most people cannot raise money. They don't have a million dollars from a VC who has equity. They have their own money that they have. But when they raise a million dollars and that company fails, What's the real worst case outcome? Okay, they end up becoming a product manager at Google. They end up becoming a software engineer at, you know, Facebook. Uh, that is most people's best case outcome. Like for a lot of people in America, they would kill just to have that worst case. So in my mind, when I think about like the risk that I'm kind of facing in my startup, it's not to say it's hard. It's, you know, very kind of anxiety and stress producing. But at the end of the day, like I'm very cognizant of the fact that like the worst case for my dad and my family was hey, if this company doesn't work out, there is a very real non-zero chance that we lose the house and we may struggle to like 
feed the kids and the family versus for me, I don't have that, you know, like it, it is still incredibly important. Like we've got 30 people on the team. Like I really do not want to, you know, lay off those people. And I don't want to kind of have to go through these things because they've got kids, they've got families, you know, they, you know, really believed in us to kind of join this mission early on, but it's a very, very different kind of risk uh, is at least the way I perceive it. So I think a lot of the decisions that I'm making now are actually non-risky. And mm -hmm. I could talk about whole like risk perception and risk appetite more if it's, it's of interest. No. And I, I think I appreciate the clarification. I, I, for you and your dad, it's completely different scenarios, apples and oranges. Yeah. I think the biggest difference with you is use your best to hedge uh, as much as possible, minimize that risk. Uh, but at the same time, just be really intentional and be really aware. I think starting any business is inherently risky, but then if you obviously are crystal clear in your game plan, your product, your roadmap, and you you, yeah. you know you, you have absolute as much confidence as possible, you can minimize yeah. that risk as much as possible, right? Yeah. Um, and you've done that time and time and time and time and time again. But without talking too much about childhood, because I know we have limited time, sir, I'm just curious, <laughs> yeah, what, what were some of the like, other really exciting ventures that you've, you've done? Like, Oh. As a little kid, between like, you know, when you're the age of five to like Northwestern, did you have a bunch of stuff going on like Pokemon? Oh, cards yeah. Or... I, I mean, I have done, uh, again, for better or for worse, the only thing I can do is startups. It seems to be what I gravitate towards all the time. <laughs> I mean, my first, I don't even know if it, it's it's certainly not a start. Like a lot of the stuff I did was just like weird hacks to make money. Um, So I, I'll go through one that you might find find as funny. When I was like 10, I was a fat kid, always hungry. And like, didn't have enough money to go out to eat. But I realized that if you go to Jamba Juice, which is just like this like smoothie place, you go to Jamba Juice, uh, you buy a smoothie, they'll give you a receipt. And with that receipt, you get like a buy one, get one uh, free kind of like Jamba Juice thing, as long as you like fill out the form. So what I do is I wait in line at Jamba Juice. Someone would buy a Jamba Juice smoothie. I'd be like, hey, can I get you a receipt? They're like, what's this weird, you know, little fat kid doing? And I'm like, ah, oh, whatever. Just like, can I get your receipt? Get the receipt. I'd fill out the survey on my phone. And then I'd wait for the next person in the line to go up. I'd be like, hey, I got this buy one, get one free Jamba Juice thing. Can I just like use it with your order? And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, can I just use it with your order? And they're like, all right, whatever. So I would just have this like infinite line of like free Jamba Juice smoothies. <laughs> so that was one of the ways I kind of got started with like this arbitrage. I think like the first serious company that I ended up kind of running that that did um kind of like real revenue was we essentially that that hedge fund I was talking about that did like mm -hmm. sneakers and tickets so the way the business worked is something like Yeezys for example uh they would retail from adidas.com for 200 bucks and then they'd go right in the aftermarket for 400 bucks and the reason for that the reason for the arbitrage was because there's a limited amount of supply and a very high amount of demand so I ended up creating some bots when I was 15 that was capable of buying out this inventory before it sold out online. And to do that, you had to have all different credit card information, all different names, all different email addresses, all different phone numbers, all different shipping addresses. Uh, so there was all of this like complexity of like, how do you get as a 15 year old, thousands of credit cards? How do you get thousands of addresses you can ship to? Um, how do you have like hundreds of thousands of dollars that you can deploy on an individual release in like a five minute period? So that was definitely a very crazy first company to run because we ended up scaling it to like eight figures of revenue by the time I was 18. Jesus. And then when did you start that? Uh, so I started that when I was 15. So I started yeah. that as I got into Northwestern. And then that company is actually still ongoing. The first employee we hired was my dad. He kind of came on as COO. Now I'm not actively managing the business anymore, but we still do about seven to eight figures of revenue a year. Yes, absolutely. I, I think arbitrage is a fantastic business model. Even now today, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're aware of Gary Vee. He, he talks about it all the time. And I also had just my first shared experiences on e-com as well, eBay, Amazon, all that stuff. And I think that's so cool. And, and it just, I think goes to show um, another element that I'm learning about you is you're just extremely resourceful. 
What were you always comfortable talking to strangers or random people and you're okay facing rejection as a little kid? Or it, was that kind of like a tough skin that developed over time? Because your Jamba yeah. Juice thing, I'm sure you faced a ton of like no's, <laughs> like who do you think you are, kid? And most kids are just yeah. run home crying, right? So like- Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think yeah, a couple things. That's actually something I've, I've thought about a bit. So part of it, I'm sure I just have like a naturally kind of extroverted bent. Part of it is I think, you know, playing into a bit. Like I'm kind of a believer that- everyone kind of like builds up a character of themselves in their mind. And a lot of the times, part of it, you have a natural inclination towards it. Part of it, you're kind of like playing into this, like, you know, you have an idea of like what the societal expectation is of you. And as a result, you're playing towards that. I think the bigger thing is that a lot of people, I think when they feel like lonely or like self-conscious, uh, they get very introverted, you know, like, like a lot of folks, for most people, for young people going to college when they're like 15, most of those people you've never heard of because they're super reclusive. They don't talk to anyone. They're really nervous. My defense mechanism was almost the opposite, which who knows exactly why that was. But my defense mechanism was actually like, if I feel lonely, and like, you know, introvert and things like that. I'm actually going to be as extroverted as possible. If I talk to everyone, um, then, you know, it's it was almost like this, like pr protective defense mechanism that I built up. Um, so I think part of it is that of just like, you know, going to college when you're 15 is a very isolating and lonely experience. And for whatever reason, my natural inclination towards doing something like that wasn't what most people do, which is getting really reclusive, but it was actually the opposite. Um, I was, I think I'm very extroverted right now. I know when I was 15 going into college, I was in order of magnitude more extroverted. Like there was not a single person I'd see on the street who I wouldn't talk to. And part <laughs> of it was just like, ah, you know, fuck, e even if only 10% of the people I talked to are willing to be my friend, that is more friends than I currently got. So let's, let's work with that. <laughs> that is clutch for entrepreneurism. You would know that, right? If, if you were to kind of learn any skill in life, whether to progress your career or one day be a business owner, it's just one-on-one genuine sales, right? Talking to yeah. people. And I think the fact that you were able to really develop a comfort, of course, it, it could have been defense mechanism, but even at that time, it, it, the fact that you were able to kind of go out there and interact with just random people um, and be used to and okay with rejection over time, I mean, that just it just cumulatively have helped you develop a set of skills, mindset, fortitude to help you just crush it as, as a future business owner down the line. And of course, like Northwestern, people be like, man, Northwestern 15, that must have been really difficult. I'm sure to some elements it was, but it would just, I would, listening to you, uh, it's just almost making, um, uh, helping you kind of on your entrepreneurial journey, develop those skills in, into something more and more and more robust so that when you're doing business on a whole nother level of scale, you know, you can just breeze, breeze past um, where a lot of people just get stuck um, or they would just give up very quickly. So I think that's absolutely fascinating. Wow. Really, really cool. So Northwestern, what was your initial like degree there? Like what, what did you major? In? What was the intention? Uh, yeah. So I came in as a computer science and economics major and I ended up dropping out when I was, I ended up dropping out my junior year going into senior year. And uh, I also was like a recipient of the Teal Fellowship, if you've uh, heard of that before. Mm -hmm. Wow. What was, was it, was it uh, this, the reselling business that's do, that was doing so well that you like, well, it, it just makes no sense for me to stay at Northwestern or were you inspired to start another business? Like how, what did that, how did that transition go? Yeah, look like? I, I mean, so the pitchy response is yes. You know, all my businesses were going so well that I just didn't see the need of being in college. The real response is I think I had just become incredibly disillusioned with Northwestern, with college in general. Um, mm -hmm. Even when I had initially gotten into college, I kind of had this idea in my mind that 
it wasn't the right fit for me. I didn't want to go. Um, but there was a bunch of these other, I think, kind of societal pressures that made it so, you know, as is the case for most people. I, I think there's a lot of, you know, 18-year-old kids who are thinking about college and they don't really know what else to do and everyone else is going into college. So they're like, oh, fuck it, I'll just go into college. That's the path of least resistance. Um, but yeah, I think enough of that ended up building up where I'm just like, I am fundamentally at odds with a lot of the things uh, that are kind of happening at this university. I, I yeah, I, I just do not think this is the right fit for me. And also I was just, uh, you know, it's detracting from my ability to kind of work on my startup. Now, before we talk about like your your other businesses, obviously Lentable today, I did notice that throughout your career, you have worked at companies, right? As a regular employee. So for someone that's just wired and been uh, inspired by a true entrepreneur like your dad, you really just embrace all that into mm-hmm. becoming an entrepreneur, a business owner yourself. What were those jobs like? And how did you feel like being in a structured environment uh, when yeah. you, know, you were just entrepreneur your whole life? Yeah, yeah. So I think the first job I had, um, so it, it was like an internship. I was working at, I had like done some like smaller internships before, but the first like serious internship I had had was at JP Morgan and I was a, a quant trader. Absolutely hated it. Um, I felt, I just had no, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was so far removed from any kind of customer facing product. My work was so abstract. It was so hard to understand what the real world implication of any of the things I was doing was. And really to me, it just felt like I was making these small micro optimizations to trading strategies to make JP Morgan, uh, you know, wealthier. And that just like, didn't matter to me at all. So I really, really struggled with that job. I think afterwards, there was a couple of benefits of like, I really did, you know, appreciate learning more about financial markets. Um, I've obviously carried that through into subsequent companies that I've ran because I still, you know, working kind of in FinTech and really care deeply about it. Um, I think my experience at Goldman, uh, much more positive. So uh, the Goldman team, instead of a quant trader, I was working on their private equity and venture capital teams. Uh, so we were doing like distressed equity investing. Uh, we were also looking at a lot of different FinTech companies. Um, and I thought, the breadth of what we were looking at was fascinating. I realized there that I absolutely loved being an early stage investor because it was just like fascinating being able to see and talk to all these founders with such like grand visions um, and just like understand how they think about the world. Because it really, I think there's something so beautiful about that, about, you know, working with people who spent their entire life for the past 10 years thinking about this one specific category um, that you might think is boring or innocuous or whatever, but to that one person that is you know, like this specific sect of like uh, inventory financing is the most important thing. And it's just really interesting to kind of unpack that. Yeah, I think the biggest reason that I didn't end up going back is I just realized like, damn, it's really cool to like, you know, talk about investing in these folks. And I, I find that very intellectually interesting, which is obviously why I'm running a fund now. Um, but what I find much more interesting is being the people actually building it. And, you know, I was talking to all these founders and I think a lot of the interest was coming in part from just intellectual curiosity, but more so from being like, damn, I want to get like that person. Like this person's changing the world. That's super cool. I want to be the person changing the world too. That's awesome. So, you know, that ended up, I think, kind of informing what I ended up doing and kind of going forward of now I knew pretty resolutely, like for better or for worse, come hell or high water, startup's going to be what I'm going to have to do. Now, before that became clear, was your initial MO just to kind of continue a career in finance or were you just kind of buying time for the next startup idea? And you're like, you know what? once I find my next business, I'm getting out of banking. Yeah. So, I, I mean, part of this, you know, when I was working at these places, I was 16 and 17. So I don't want to make it seem at all that my ideas were kind of solidified. But I think the way I always thought about the world is there's two core things I wanted to take care of. The first was make sure that my family was taken care of for the rest of my life, that, you know, they're in a position where they're financially sound, they're financially safe. The, 
you know, caveat there is that like that didn't matter to me. I actually could care less if I had a super nice car, super like I, I found a lot of this stuff actually quite boring. I was like, I don't know why all these billionaires have these like crazy mansions. They should have like these ridiculous moonshot plays where they're gambling just like all of their net worth like every couple of years because like that's so much more interesting and fun. Um, yeah, so I think you know for, first order uh, kind of thing to take care of was like make sure that my fa family's financially taken care of, which is why I started working both in startups and uh, you know at these financial firms because I was just like this is the best possible way to do it. And then the second one is like let's make a lasting impact on the world that changes it for the better. And you know part of it I could make some like you know altruistic kind of pitch for why I cared about that of like yeah you know I'm just such a good person I really care about making the world a better place. But a lot of it to me was just like it was it seemed like the most fun thing I could be doing with my time. And I know that sounds odd, but I was just like, yeah, like being someone like Bill Gates who revolutionized, you know, personal computing, who revolutionized compute. It's awesome that he changed the world. It's awesome that he made it a better place. It's awesome that he has all this capital to do all these other things. But like, even simpler than that, that's just really fucking cool. Like that's just, that's <laughs> awesome. And I think there was something just very core to my perception of it, of like, that just seems like the most fun thing you could be, possibly be doing. Mm. Now, quickly talk about you working in, at Dropbox in a product role. So why product? How did you find that job? What was life like? What did you learn from it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I ended up getting the job at Dropbox. It was actually, I uh, was in a very atypical situation because I started working there at 19. So I think I was like the youngest product manager they'd ever had. And I also started working there after I dropped out. And I don't know if there was anyone else who came in as part of the new grad program who had just dropped out. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason for product, uh, the biggest reason that I ended up going to Dropbox was just because it was the catalyst to move out to San Francisco. So mm -hmm. at the time when I was building every prior company prior to LendTable, the business I'm working on now, I was in Chicago and I had this idea in my head. I've heard kind of whisperings that San Francisco was the place to be. San Francisco was the place to build a startup. So at the time, I thought it made a lot of sense to kind of move out to San Francisco. In retrospect, that ended up being quite literally the best decision I've ever made in my entire life. I am the biggest San Francisco zealot. I think it was the biggest step function change towards everything I'm now currently doing. But yeah, so, you know, that, that was one big aspect. Also, the fact that like Dropbox was now this like large tech company. I wanted to learn how to manage uh, these kind of cross-functional teams. Taking on that product role would help build up my engineering shops, help understand how to work, uh, you know, across all these different verticals. That's amazing. Now, I there was a job that you also worked as an engineer. You mentioned that obviously the beginning days of your uh, arbitrage business, you created bots. That requires some sort of level of coding as well. So did you... Did you pick up like, did you self-teach yourself like growing up as a, as a, as a kid, a couple of languages like Python or something? Did you pick it up? Did it become a lot more serious in Northwestern and beyond? Or how are your kind of coding chops now? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'll I be the first to tell you that my coding chops have definitely diminished a bit, uh, you know, since, since kind of stepping in a lens table working on this. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I just kind of taught myself to code when I was um, 15. And a lot of it was just really good at copy and pasting. Like I got very adept <laughs> at learning how to like, you know, hack together kind of random pieces of like third-party software, you know, add in a little bit of flair to it and like make it work for the purpose that I had. Mm -hmm. Now the Dropbox story is really interesting because uh, you mentioned that, you know, you got into the, the banking finance world, young age, you stay there for quite a bit. And then, you know, it was at, it, it was when, you know, you realize, wow, I, I'm really passionate about building and interacting with small teams. And just, I love the process of having an idea and, and seeing that come to fruition. Did you also feel that at the same time at Dropbox or was Dropbox like the main, uh, at that time, you're like, hey, the reason why I'm at Dropbox is to help me move to San Francisco. And then maybe depending on how things go, I'll start another company in San Francisco, or maybe yeah. just kind of put that kind of entrepreneurism on pause a little bit while you're at Dropbox. 
Yeah. So I, I wasn't sure. I mean, going into mm. it, I think one, I was, I, I was in a job making a lot of money, um, made probably four times more money than my parents have ever made it, uh, you know, like collectively. So that was great. And I think, you know, I thought like this, this might be what I love. Maybe I love being a product manager. Maybe this is the right fit for me. I think I very quickly realized I, I hated it. Like I, I absolutely hated that. And it wasn't to, I want to be so clear. Um, I'm so grateful for the people who hired me there. I'm so grateful for the team that I had. Like they were genuinely amazing people. But like, I, this is kind of going back to like what I was saying a little bit at the beginning of the call. There's a couple of things that I really disliked. One, I just didn't care about what I was building at all. I felt like I was making micro optimizations that weren't really going to be seen by anyone that didn't affect anything. They didn't do anything meaningful. Um, and I think that really, I really struggled with that. I'm just like, what's the point of making all this money if I'm going to be doing something that's so boring? And two, and I know this is going to sound weird, especially given the current climate today, but there was no pressure to perform. Like there was not like, you know, at the time, I truly think that I could have done 10, 20 hours of work a week and had next to no risk of getting fired. Um, and for a lot of people, they're like, wow, that sounds amazing. Like that sounds like the best possible job because it makes sense. You're making a lot of money and like you don't necessarily need to do anything. I struggled with that so profoundly. I think so much of what I do, uh, so much of how I kind of view myself, so much of what I care about is tied up around what I'm working on, the people I'm spending time with, what I'm building. And this just ended up resulting in this just like fundamental schism. I'm like, damn, if I'm going to be valuing a lot of, and you know, maybe this is a broader psychological thing I should look into kind of later on. But like the time I was like, I don't know if this is like, if this is a way I'm thinking about who I am and what I want to become and I'm doing something I just don't care about. That was a really, really, really difficult thing for me. So that was one of the biggest reasons kind of why I left. I was just like, I can't get fired here. There's no pressure to perform. There's no incentive to do better. Um, this is just not an environment. Like that was one thing I actually did love about the Goldman environment. I love the fact that we were doing 90 to 100 hours a week. And it was just so laser focused. Now, the, the actual purpose and the mission of just like, it was just making money, that was less interesting. But the fact we were just like, it was so driven and so competitive. I just feed it off that environment. Like I, I loved it. I loved the feeling of the, the constant competition. I, I, for whatever reason, just really enjoyed it. What goes through your mind when you leave these big companies, Jared? And a lot of people be like, you know what, Dropbox, I made it. Goldman Sachs, I made it. I'm just gonna coast you know, yeah. save all my cash and then just live a good life. Like when you leave these companies, yeah. maybe we've already established this before in the call, but I just yeah. want to hear you say it again. But like, when you leave this, do you ever like worry or concern? Like what if like, or is it always like, Hey, everything will be fine. I, I, worst case scenario, I'll just go back and get another job. Yeah. So I think here's where I can probably give a very, um, atypical perspective. I actually believe that working at these large corporate tech companies is far, far, far riskier than most people let on. And I also think that doing a startup is far less risky than most people think about it as well. And to explain that real quick, I'll give some context to my kind of current financial position, but I'll also say like what it was for, I think, most people in that position. I was fortunate at the time I'd made a bunch of money off my sneaker company. So I knew that like I could go without a job for two years and still be okay. Now I'm very cognizant that most people want that position. Most people, let, let's say you're you know, working in a place like Dropbox, obviously this is different for other people in other parts of the country, but you know, most people have, let's say three to six months of savings. At the time when I initially, when I left Dropbox, I actually thought I totally fucked up because I left Dropbox, then COVID happened like a month later, mass layoffs, the company that I was starting, Lentable, is in the benefit space. It seems like companies are going to start getting rid of their 401k match. And I know I haven't explained what the company does, but mm -hmm. for the people listening, companies getting rid of their 401k match fundamentally messes up my company. So I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like I just left this job. The company I'm trying to work on now, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, oh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But, you know, I, I think at the time, like the biggest thing for me that I kind of realized is that 
there's risk with staying at this company. So like if I stayed at Dropbox, there's a chance I get laid off. Um, there's a chance I get fired. And like Dropbox did end up doing layoffs and firings. And those are things that are completely outside of my control. Now, obviously in an up market, it seems like no one's getting laid off. No one's getting fired, but like it's always possible and you have no control over your future. On the same time, I wasn't building up any skill sets. Like I wasn't learning. I wasn't passionate. I wasn't happy psychologically, mentally, emotionally. Um, like I was really struggling. And there was a lot of other long-term kind of detrimental effects of being in a position where you don't care about what you're doing. Like, I don't think it's just something that's affecting you in the here and now. It's like you being anxious or sad or nervous all the time. It's going to cut your lifespan by five years. It's going to reduce your productivity, reduce your ability to learn. Like all of these real, you know, you can put real economic kind of indicators behind it. And then the other thing I was just like, let's take the absolute worst case, like absolute worst case of what could happen with Lentable. I start this company. Maybe I try to raise some money. Maybe I can't raise any money. Okay. I work on this company for three to six months. I realize it's not going to work. I hate it. Doesn't make any sense. More likely than not, I can just go back to the same job. That's not hundred percent the case. Maybe they won't take me back, but more likely than not, I can do that. And if I can't do that, there's a good chance that I can get a job that's of relatively equal value. There's some chance that I can only get a job where I make like half to like, you know, 75% as much. But even that, it's not really that big of a deal. Like it'll be a job transition anyways. And there's even a world in which I leave this job, don't do the startup stuff for six months. I now have that as a thing on my resume. And now I try to get another job and I just get a better job. So in my mind, there was genuinely very little risk behind what I was doing. Now, if I was talking to someone who, like, like you know, for, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm half black, had a bunch of buddies of mine who grew up in like the South Side of Chicago when I was a kid. My recommendation to them on like what to do with college is very different. I would not tell them to drop out of school. I think like that's a risk. If you drop out of school and you try to do a startup, there's a very real chance that if this thing doesn't work out, you're kind of fucked. You know what I mean? Like you can't get another corporate job. You can't make this money. Um, but if I'm talking to like a lot of the people I grew up with out here who are like these, you know, like white male Stanford kids who grew up in like affluent communities and neighborhoods, I genuinely don't think that there was any risk at all of doing a startup. Because in the absolute worst case, you try to do a startup for a year, you don't have the startup badge on your resume. You can talk about how you were a CEO. You can talk about how you're a leader. You're probably just going to get a better job than what you were before. Like it's it's almost in like no cases of risk, you know. Like you're you're not you're not betting your own money. You can raise VC dollars. Like it's not like you're gonna go bankrupt. Maybe you have like a slightly less comfortable living situation right now, but you probably don't care about that that much. Mm. So I think a lot of the risk ends up coming on like emotionally and psychologically. Like for a lot of these people, I think it is real of like doing something where you fail it and you put your time into it can really be detrimental to kind of who you are as a person. Which is why for most people. I don't necessarily recommend startups. Like, you know, there's this very long tail of distribution where 1% of people are going to be end up, end up becoming decabillionaires. A lot of the people are not going to make any money off of it. You need to be someone who is not, 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 not like you obviously want the decabillionaire outcome, but you need to be happy being in this kind of like trough of gray area. Um, and, and that shouldn't, as long as that's not like a fundamentally miserable place for you to be in, then I don't know. I think it's a good fit. I don't think it's that risky. Look, it all makes sense. I think what's fascinating to me is you're able to be aware of this at such a young age while at Dropbox. And yeah. I think 100% it's emotional. People, Most people, if they lose a job, they leave a job like, oh, crap, what am I going to do with the rest of my life now? Yeah. For you, look, you're, you're, you kind of skip that. And then you immediately kind of go into like opportunity costs, pros and cons. Worst case scenario, I'll be fine. Best case scenario, like, hey, there's, there's just no ceiling on, on what I could do. And to yeah. me, I, I think that's fascinating. What... What motivates you? What inspires you? Is it really as simple as you want to be working on something that that you feel something from that that really yeah. kind of creates that fire? Is, is it as simple as simple as that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think 
you you know, there's a lot of factors. The simplest one of like having money is great. Like I can I can spend stuff. Like I think like there's the ego, there's the fame. It's cool. Like if I was working at Dropbox right now, would people want to talk to me about doing a podcast? Maybe, but probably not. So like there's some kind of like ego and fame and things like that in that. But yeah, I mean, I think if like you go onto the surface of like money and ego and fame and power, um, I think a lot of it, like I love the complexity. I think mm. like I'm someone where uh, there are certain kinds of people where they love to go incredibly deep on one subject. I'm someone, I'm pretty scatterbrained. Like I like to work cross-function a bunch of, bunch of different things. Like in my role, I do customer service. I do HR, I do benefits, I do risk, I do compliance. I do, you know, I do engineering, I do product. I really like that. I like being cross-functional across all these things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I'm also the kind of person where some people love to have, and they're really good at taking clearly defined guardrails. Like here is the box you kind of exist in, execute on that box. And and that's not necessarily about like there are people who are just phenomenal executors who love that. They love the guardrails. They love knowing exactly what's going on. They love executing on that. I'm less that person. I'm someone where I'm like, hey, there's no box. Let's figure out what we're executing on. Let's figure out what we're doing. Let's try to create some structure from this area of no structure. Um, so I'm someone I think who just has like a natural propensity toward uh, towards wanting to gravitate towards problems like that. Yeah. And, and then I think I also, you know, this is like, I guess, a bit of the like the effective altruist in me, which I'm, I'm sure is getting, you know, some bad raps given everything that's happening with like the biggest effective altruist right now. But yeah, no, I, I, I just I do truly believe that what I'm currently doing now is the path that will maximize my ability to make a positive impact for the world. And I even mean that over doing a nonprofit, over doing any company. I think that like, you know, fundamentally what Landtable does, we're helping a whole lot of people save for retirement that never would have been able to do so before. And by doing that, we're also doing it very profitably. So it's an organization that could exist, hopefully at a point in time, even without me. And, you know, the money that I'll be able to make from that, there's all these different ways that I can kind of redistribute and reinvest that. And that's super important to me. Quick second before we certainly talk a lot more about Rentable. Now, uh, we don't have enough time on the podcast to go through every business that you did up until Rentable, but I just want to ask you for someone that's uh, started multiple businesses before Rentable, uh, would you just be able to share maybe a couple like highlight ones that that you know you really liked or remains memorable for you? And what was the biggest lesson you learned from from them? Oh yeah. Oh shit. There's so many, so, I mean, this, it's very cliche to say it, but there's so many fuck ups. I think you end up learning <laughs> anything. You learn more about the failed ones than you do about the ones that kind of work. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, some of the, the funny, funnier companies is like for the sneaker company, I've owned hundreds of thousands of pairs of Yeezys over my life, which is probably not, I, I'm probably one of the top 10 owners of Yeezys in the world. I don't know if that's fully true, but something, something to that tune. Yeah, I mean, the tattoo business was super interesting. Like I went from like fintech, fintech, arbitrage to tattoos, where we were kind of doing this like marketplace to make it easier to connect tattoo artists and people to kind of get tattoos. Maybe a takeaway there, tattoo artists are really fucking hard to work with. They're great people. They're incredibly passionate about their craft, but a lot of them are very anti-technology, not in like a, oh, I don't know if I want to use technology. Like, no, I think technology is the bane of all evil. So whenever you're working with artists, make sure to be very, very cognizant of how you're interacting and engaging with them. Again, I want to be clear, tattoo artists are wonderful people, but some of them are absolute technology haters, which I understand. But yeah, I mean, I think some of the biggest takeaways is don't get caught up. Um, I see this happen to a lot of like, especially like young finding teams. So many people get caught up in like all these arguments around equity. Like I've seen so many companies blow up because people are complaining, oh, this person is 30% equity or 40% equity. It doesn't fucking matter. Like there's going to be like most startups are a very binary success outcome, which means most of the time, 95% of the time, your company is worth zero. 
and 5% of the time, your company is worth billions of dollars. And when your company's worth zero, it obviously doesn't matter if you have 30% or 40%, it's zero. And if the company's worth billions of dollars, sure, you know, 10% is the difference of hundreds of millions, but you're already worth a billion dollars. You don't really care about that either. Um, so I'd recommend just like, don't get bogged down over like the number and some like, you know, trying to create this like complicated corporate structure of like how these people vest equity. In my mind, you pick a co-founder that you really fucking love, you really want to work with, and you either want to work with them and you don't. It's not a, I want to work with this person for 15%, but not for 20%. You want to work with this person and you don't. And if you don't, then make sure you're not. Don't try to just like, you know, minimize the amount of equity you're giving them. Is there another business aside from the tattoo one before Lent table that you want to highlight as well? Uh, many. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe, there was, maybe one, uh, one, one more, one more. Yeah, 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 uh, sure. So, so yeah, I mean, the tattoo business, that was kind of that marketplace. A company that I, I, I really like and is actually still in operation today um, called Ulti. So we were helping non-accredited investors get access to private equity funds and alternative investments. To explain the jargon real quick there, right now, the only people who are able to invest in Lendtable are what are called accredited investors. So those are people with a certain amount of net worth. It is significantly higher than the average American. The average American who makes 100K a year is never going to be able to get an investment into a company like Lendtable or like Google before they went public. Uh, there are these groups called funds private equity funds, alternative investment funds. And what they do is they collect money from other investors and they invest it into startups like mine. Now, same thing there. If you want to be able to invest in one of these funds, you need to be a wealthy billionaire. You need to be a millionaire. You can't be a average retail consumer. So we built a platform that made it possible for those non-accredited investors think you know, mom and pop making 80K a year collectively to be able to invest in these alternative investments and get access to the returns there. Learned a lot about dealing with regulation, about the complexity, about timelines taking longer than you expect, about, you know, how to communicate this with users, about the, you know, risk that's inherited in a lot of these projects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. I think we're seeing a, a huge trend in democratizing investments. Um, I, I think there's a recent VC that's allowing kind of retail investors, non-credit people to jump in. And I think it's a really cool time uh, that it's not just only resorted to a, a small amount of people, a small amount of companies. So I think it's a fascinating idea. And without going too much more depth uh, into these companies prior to table, I just wanted to ask you, and I'm personally curious, what is like, do you have a process of, of filtering out ideas that you kind of want to execute and start business? Like I'm sure you have ideas all the time going through your head. Yeah. And then this, my second question, and we talked about this before, how do you know when it's a good time to just stop the business? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a both great questions. I think both are a learning experience that I'm kind of going through. And I think Lendable has been a very different experience because uh, I think throughout most of my life, I've always been running all these concurrent companies. Mm -hmm. um, like I've typically ran, this sounds like one very like straight path. I worked on a company, I stopped working on a company, I worked on a company, I stopped working on a company. These things all eb ebbed and flowed together. Like sometimes, especially when I was younger, Sometimes I just lost fucking interest. I was like, this company is cool, but like, I'm just disinterested in this. And it's like not immediately taking off right now. And that's actually been a broader thing I've kind of had to work on as a founder, as an entrepreneur. I get really excited by these zero to one projects, but I think I need to figure out a way to keep the excitement and keep the interest and keep the drive when it comes to one to 10. Anyways, though. Yeah. I mean, I think it very much so depends kind of at your stage. Like I'd say, if I was talking to a bunch of uh, like first time founders right now, I'll take my little brother as an example. Like my little brother just raised $3 million for his crypto startup. And the biggest recommendation I had for him, just do something. 
I think for most people who are starting their founder journey, the most important thing is just to try something, even if it's a totally dog shit idea that doesn't make any sense. The fact that you're going out there trying to build something, learning the complexity, learning how to manage it, like you're learning so much about how to build a company that come next time when you have a better idea. Yeah, you know, there's so much more you can do. And then I think like the general framework you want to give for a company, the first thing you want to understand, what are your goals? Like, is your goal to make some billion dollar empire that changes the world? Is your goal just to just turn off some amount of consistent cash flow? Is your goal to kind of like, you know, do something different in this market? Because like, those are very different companies. You know, there's, I've ran companies before where it's like, I couldn't raise any venture money. I didn't have any access to it. And my main goal, the sneaker business is an example. I wasn't trying to make the world a better place. I was trying to make money. And by making money, it was great if I could have become a billionaire, but more so it was like, no, I want to make money in the next six months. So therefore I'm going to try to optimize my focus towards making money in six months and not try to optimize towards having a billion dollar company. Um, Cause those are, you, you build companies in very different ways if you're trying to do one of those two things. So that, that, that'd be the first like, you know, general internal stuff I'd ask of like, what am I looking for from this company? What do I want to do? What's my risk tolerance? Um, what industries am I excited about? I think it is incredibly important to pick something that you care about just because it's going to get hard. You know, things are going to fuck up. Things are going to suck. And you need to have something keeping you going, even in those bad times. And a lot of people, I think the reason they stop is just like, they're in an industry they don't give a shit about. And, you know, the second that their company hits a road bump, but things aren't that easy, they're just like, fuck it. I'm done with this. I don't care about this anymore. It's, it's over. Wow. I really appreciate the insight. So I guess let's fast forward and talk about Lend Table, your your current okay. your current baby that you're building right now. Um, you shared a little bit. Now, what's interesting is that you started this company at a relatively difficult time, just economically, right? COVID happened yep. and this that. How how did you come up with the idea? Like, what inspired you? And if you can maybe share for our audience again, what exactly do you guys do? Like, what is your project? Yeah, yeah, yeah no worries. So the the sixty seconds on Lend Table is we provide people with wealth building cash advances so that they can take full advantage of their 401k match and other employee benefits. Uh, for those who might not know, a 401k match, let's take Walmart as an example. It's a company saying, if you put in $3,000 to your 401k, we will match it and give you an additional $3,000. If that sounds like 100% guaranteed return on investment, it is. It is one of the very few, if not only, guaranteed 100% returns that you have access to. Okay, that's cool. But like, why does LendTable exist? Well, 50% of the people who have access to that do not use it. So that is the, you know, Walmart worker making 50K a year. They are not putting in $3,000 to their 401k. Now, when a lot of people hear that, the first thing their mind jumps to is just like, oh, it's a huge education problem. Like these people must not know that it exists. They must not know what's happening. They must not know how to manage their money. Let's show them how to manage their money and then they'll take advantage of this. But the more underlying issue is actually a lack of liquidity or a lack of cash. The average American does not have $500 in their bank account for an emergency expense. So a lot of these people are actually making a rational financial decision. Instead of wording it as, oh, you know, why aren't these people using $3,000 to double it and turn it into 6,000, it's more, should these people not pay rent so that they can contribute to their 401k? Most people would say, no, you know, it's, it's great to get that investment return. It's great to double your money. But if you can't feed your kids, if you can't pay rent, if you can't pay off your car, like those are probably things that you should take care of first before you start saving and investing for retirement. As a result, there's this huge hole in the market. You've got, we're talking tens of millions of people every year who have access to this incredible investment return. We're talking a 100% guaranteed 
they do not have the money themselves to take advantage of it. So what we do, we actually provide them with the money. We say, you have access to this $3,000 401k match, but you can't afford to use it. We'll put in the $3,000 for you. Your company will match it and give you an additional $3,000. And then whenever you leave your employer, you have the ability to pull that money out. So let's say we do 3,000 to 3,000, so it turns into 6,000. The way we make money, we take back our principal, so the money we gave you, plus 20% of your 401k match. So we're going to get $3,600 out of that 6,000 in your account. You are now left with $2,400 that you otherwise wouldn't have had. And that's 80% of your 401k match, where previously you were getting 0%. Um, so that's the fundamental idea is that there are all of these fintech companies that try to help you better advise and better automate what you're doing. But fundamentally, what we believe is, you know, like the average American has access to so many incredible investment opportunities, incredible employee benefits. The thing preventing them from using all of it, though, is just liquidity. They do not have the cash on hand. So we're essentially we're becoming their private banker. We're becoming, you know, their private fund to help them take advantage of all these opportunities. I think that's awesome. So for each user, if they get the cash from you guys, what's the expected timeline that you think you guys can get an ROI back from one user? So what, what if yeah. that person never leaves Walmart, for instance, and they just keep all their cash at one company, then what happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great question. So, I mean, part of it, this is why we, we have a diversified portfolio. So some people are going to leave in a month. Some people are going to leave in three months and people are going to leave in six months. And then you're right. There are some people who are going to stay at Walmart for five, 10 years. And then that's when we get the payback. Part of the reason we're comfortable with that, we know that the average timeline is a year to year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, we're also working on ways to kind of help people actually do those withdrawals in the interim where there's ways, uh, the biggest reason that we wait until you leave your company is because that's when 100% of people have the ability to pull out the money. And the reason that that's important is we don't require or necessitate anyone to do a 401k withdrawal, but we're also cognizant of the fact that for a lot of our users, they did not have the money in the first place. So it's not like they can just like pay us back this 3,600 from their paycheck. The only way for them to pay us back is by taking out money from their 401k. But there are things like 401k kind of loans you can take from the account to kind of pay back uh, that we're helping people facilitate as well. So it's actually cutting down that kind of payment timeline. How do you keep keep tabs on your users? So, like, do you have some sort of organization process, or uh, for you know, use account managers? But for for users, like, how do you know that they're gonna leave their job? And then, of course, you have to kind of follow up. Hey, by the way, you know, you have yeah. to pay us now. Like, how how do you guys yeah. kind of sort all that? Yeah, yeah. So I think this kind of introduces like the broader question of like, why doesn't this exist? So like, why hasn't someone kind of done something like this before? Um, because on its surface, it's like the question of like, okay, it sounds like a really easy investment, and I think. Um, the way I describe it, if this is a problem that like Jeff Bezos had, every single fund in the world would be giving willing to give him any amount of money to take advantage of this opportunity. Like if Jeff Bezos had a $24 billion 401k match, anyone would want to give him money. The reason that this hasn't happened for you know the American making 60k a year is you're dealing with small amounts of money. You're dealing with a three, four, five, you know, small amount relative to Jeff Bezos money, certainly not small to you know that person. But you're dealing with three, four, five thousand dollars. So the way to actually do that at scale. You connect to their bank account, you connect to their paywall, you connect to their 401k, you get visibility across all these accounts, and then you also have authorization access where you can move money in and out. Um, and that's how we actually manage it. So we have like a big CRM, um, customer retention manager, where we essentially look across all these different, um, you know, uh, we get all these different data points when they're leaving their company, how long they're at their company, how much money they have in their balance. And then we can both see when we need to kind of withdraw the money and actually help them with that withdrawal.
I'm curious, Sharon, how like how big is the market? How many companies in in the country do you know? Like on maybe uh, just a, a rule of thumb, like offer 401k, and how many of those yeah. actually offer a percentage match? Yeah, it's a great question. So we're talking about 95% plus of Fortune 500 companies have access to this. Now, there's a long tail like small mom and pop shops. So like in startup land, actually a lot of startups don't offer 401ks, but most people don't work for startups. Most people work for Walmart. Walmart has a 401k match. Uh, Target has a 401k match. McDonald's has a 401k match. So we're talking about like nearly 100 million people have access to a 401k match. Man, that's crazy. It's it's yeah. so um, you know when when you were describing your company, my gut reaction was telling me, wow, this is an educational problem. But mm-hmm. but it's it, it makes sense. People just don't have access to the capital. So like companies that offer 401k match, they just assume that majority of the employees are just not going to follow through. Yeah. So, so I, I think, you know, the, well, let me know if this is the question underlying here, how do companies feel about you? Companies yeah. most hate you. Cost them right. Money. Yeah. right. It's right. very, very fair thought because at the end of the day, it kind of just sounds like money, you know, before companies were only doing 50% of the 401k match. Now with Luntable, they're doing 80% of the 401k <laughs> match. That's 30% more expensive. We're actually, you know, 60% more expensive. Yeah. So what's interesting is that for a lot of these companies, they actually need to get more people to contribute to their 401k. And the reason for it is there's something called 401k non-discrimination testing. So if you're a company that offers a 401k plan, you need to have enough people who contribute to their 401k that make less than 120,000 a year as the people who make more than 120,000 a year. And when there's an imbalance, you get fined. So there's next to 100,000 companies every year that go through this 401k non-discrimination testing and get hit with these fines. And it's a big issue. So companies like McDonald's and Walmart actually have a mandate to get more people to participate in their plan. So like McDonald's is an example, has one of the best 401k matches in the industry. And when people hear that, they're like, I'm shocked. Cause like when you think McDonald's, you don't think, you know, better competitive pay than like Google. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason they do that is because for the average worker, they value a 401k match, the dollars for a 401k match higher than hash compensation itself. And a better way to kind of uh, explain that is, uh, have you worked uh, for, for like a company before, like a corporate job? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Let me give you two worlds. One world is your employer calls you up and says, hey, we're going to cut your salary by $5,000. The other world, your employer calls you up and tells you, hey, we're about to cut off your health insurance. Which one would you prefer? The salary. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's because most people they're like, look, like I don't want to get a salary reduction, but I'm definitely not going to lose my health insurance. Like that mm-hmm. is that is a non-starter. Right. Um, same thing with 401k matches. 401k matches are the second most important employee benefit outside of healthcare. Um, so the way we see our business is that, and this kind of gets uh to like a little bit of a meta point about how we think broadly about kind of the industry. The most inefficient way to pay someone is through cash. When you pay someone cash, they go through income tax, state and federal, they go through capital gains tax. When they invest this money, they go through sales tax. It's very expensive. You know, that company is giving you a hundred bucks and you're only getting 50. And it's true. Your company wants to give you as little money as possible, but they want you to get the most amount of money from that. Like, for example, if I could just give my employees a hundred dollars with them not having to pay any tax, I'd be like, that's great. Like it doesn't cost me anything more. They get twice the money. So I effectively just doubled their salary, but it's free for me. Um, so I think, you know, long-term, the way we kind of think about this business is we're actually enabling all of these companies to maximize the amount of money they put towards benefits. Cause you want to have effectively, you want to pay people zero cash. You want to pay them all employee stock purchase plans and HSAs and unutilized PTO and equity stock grants and all this shit. Because even if you pay that employee that same $100,000, 
they're now getting $90,000 out of it instead of getting $50,000 out of it. So when you're trying to compete against the other company paying this employee 150000 well, the employee doesn't care what their pre-tax income is. Mm-hmm. All they care about is their after-tax income. That's, that's the only thing they actually get in their bank account. So that's kind of like, you know, the, the broader meta thing we think about this business of if you create a more efficient way of being able to contribute to these benefits, contribute to these things, it's good for the employee because now they just get money saved for their retirement. They get to get protected from all these things. It's better for the employer because now they're able to route all this money towards after-tax contributions, whereas all these things that get, get hit with tax. And it's good for the government because this is why these benefits exist. Like the 401k was not created to be a safe haven for all of these billionaires and all these millionaires to park their money. It exists to try and get the low-income folks to be able to contribute. And that's not been what's happening today. Wow. How how did this idea of Lentable come to be? Yeah. So it started at Dropbox. You know, I had some buddies who weren't using their 401k match. I'm like, that's crazy. Like, you know, I'm kind of going back into my arbitrage mind of like, huh. I'm like, why aren't you using it? And they're like, I don't have the money. And I'm like, what if I give you the money? And they're like, is that legal? I'm like, I don't know. I don't really care. Like, whatever. You know what I mean? Just like, give me your account info. I'll pay you a thousand bucks. I'll contribute for you. Like, you don't even need to worry about it. And then I think, you know, for me, fortunately, like I, I owe so much of kind of what we're doing at this company to my co-founder, uh, Mental Jones. Um, when I met him, I had kind of like talked about this idea. I talked about what I was thinking on the 401k side, but it wasn't even really thinking of building this like scalable organization. It was just like, this could be a really cool way of making a couple million dollars a year. Like, let's mm-hmm. just do a bunch of Dropbox people's 401k, risk-free, make a bunch of money. And then, you know, we talked about like, no, like there's really an opportunity here to, I, I think the way we see it is we are fundamentally building a new category where there was this, like one of the first advents of FinTech was robo-advisors. Like we are going to automatically make it so much easier for you to save and invest. Acorns, Robinhood, uh, Fidelity, like, sorry, not Fidelity, Acorns, like Betterment, all these platforms. They're like, it's really hard to invest. Let's make it easier to invest. And the way we see it is the next the next step, you know, the next logical thing that needs to happen here. And like, let, let's use kind of billionaires as an example, because uh, like they're the ones with kind of the best optimizations across all their accounts. One big thing for billionaire portfolio management was just having kick-ass portfolio managers, having quants who can actively trade all this stuff. But the bigger thing that actually enables these people to make money is access to capital markets. Like mm-hmm. when Elon is buying Twitter, it's great that he's got some financial advisor who's doing all this financial engineering to help him better understand how to do it. But the bigger thing, he has $14 billion or $10 billion or however many billions of dollars in bank loans. That's what actually enables him to do this acquisition. Mm-hmm. And for the average consumer today, their only concept of debt is this negative thing that costs you money. Credit card debt, student loan debt, like none of these things make you wealth. Like there is no concept of like having access to a debt facility that is going to enable you to build wealth. Why not though? It's not like these people don't have access to investment returns. If anything, again, let's go back to the point. They have a better investment return than billionaires. There is not a single billionaire today, with exception of some maybe some like fraudulent things that they're doing, who legitimately has a 100% yearly offered return. That is what a 401k matches. Every single year, these people can make a 100% return on investment. That's insane. Like that is fundamentally insane. That is unheard of. Um, most financial managers would tell you that like, if you hear something like that, go to the hills and run because it's bullshit and it's fraud. And like, they're trying to take advantage of you. But no, like that is something that the majority of Americans have access to. And there are 45 plus other employee benefits that exist just like that. Um, there's even crazy things like, a, you know, like j- just recently, I don't know if you've heard of I-bonds by any chance, um, but I-bonds is like these inflation adjusted bonds right now, T-bills pay, uh, you know, T-bills are coming out and paying 4.7%. But with I-bonds, you can get 7%. 
you get a 50% higher rate on T-bills. And it's only available to consumers with $10,000. Like you cannot do it as a large corporation. And you are making T-bills a risk-free rate that is 50% higher. There are hedge fund and portfolio managers that are making millions of dollars a year of trying to increase the risk-free rate or, or, you know, try to find something which is a slightly riskier product, but, you know, gets that, you know, rate up 0.3%. This is something you can log online and do it in five minutes. And great, you just increase that rate of return by 50%. That's crazy. Wow. So for something like this, where it's a clear value added and, and a win-win for really every player involved, what was kind of your strategy initially when you launched the company to kind of get the word out there? I'm, of course, a portion of your marketing or media outreach has to have be a little bit of education, kind of really get people to understand what 401k is and how you know you guys are providing truly a value. Like what, what, what were the early days like for you guys when you launched? I was, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Um, I mean, early days, definitely interesting. Like a lot of it was like consumer education and trust of, you know, it's a confusing pitch. Like, what do you mean you want me to take out a loan so I can use my 401k? That's not how you're supposed to use a 401k. How can I trust you guys? Uh, and I think that was a big thing we focused on, you know, kind of throughout building the company. How do we get people to trust us? How do we build up a brand reputation that people know that we're actually doing it for the betterment of them? Um, how do we make that messaging make sense? How do we get it so people actually understand how our product and service works? And so much of that has been informed by what the product team has been doing, what the engineering team has been doing, customer success and customer service of how we talk with our customers, our brand and messaging and our ads. Yeah, it's really um, like pervasive throughout the company. How far along on the on the product roadmap um, is Lendable uh, with your current product right now? Like, what can people? Come yeah, expect? I mean, so we have two products that are live. We've got the four one k match product, and we've got the employee stock purchase plan product, which. An employee stock purchase plan without digging into it too much, it essentially says Tesla is like, you can buy 15% of, uh, you can take 15% of your salary and buy Tesla stock at a 15% discount and you can sell it the same day. So it's a guaranteed return and you get it at the lowest price over a six month period without getting into the economics of it. It's effectively similar to a 401k and the fact that it's just free money. Yeah, so we've got those two products live and then a lot of the stuff that we've been building has been focusing on making it far easier for people to sign up. Now, you know, we ingest all of the different 401k plan documents from the hundreds of thousands of different companies with 401ks. So you don't even need to know what your 401k is to be able to sign up at Lentable. We connect to your bank account. We connect to your payroll. We connect to your 401k provider. You don't need to show us proof of pay stub. We can just log into your accounts. We can tell you, here's how much you make. Here's how much you're going to make for your 401k plan. Here's how your company's 401k plan works. And the goal is to make it as seamless and as easy as possible for people to sign up, even if they don't understand how their benefits work. Wow, that's awesome. And then in the future, um, it's safe to assume that you're just going to continue to offer more products and services under the whole like free money ethos. Is that correct? You got 401k, yeah. you got stock options, you got, you're going to just continue to offer yeah. more and more and more offerings. That's really yeah. awesome. How big is the team to date at the time of the shooting? Yeah, so the team is about 30 people. We've raised about $30 million of equity to date. And we also have like a, a debt facility, which is how we're kind of funding a lot of these advances. Going from one or two co-founders to team of 30 is quite a feat, um, especially in this climate. So what would you say was your kind of secret to success or the secret sauce to allow you guys to scale to, to reach like a third number, which is a really healthy, critical number for any company? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think one of our biggest differentiators is the fact that we're doing something and I'm not trying to, you know, pat myself on the back, but we are doing something truly unique. I think there are a lot of fintech companies that are different flavors of a corporate card or a consumer card or consumer bank account, or, you know, they're different flavors of the same thing. And we truly are the only ones who are doing 401k matches, employees, stuff, or just bonds. We've had two copycats kind of come up, but like we really did 
pioneer this category. And I think that's one thing that kind of really resonated, um, you know, with investors, with our team, uh, really kind of inspired people to be able to work. Um, and a lot of that too is also the fact that, especially in consumer lending, it is a, and this isn't me speaking ill of any other companies, but I think people do really want to work somewhere and they want to work with people who are making the world a better place. They want to make money. That's great. But ideally, you're making money and you're making the world a better place. There's just a lot of consumer lenders. Like, you know, let's look at, there's just a lot, a, a lot of these, you know, buy now, pay later, being like a big category. It's questionable if that's good for people. You could make an argument that, you know, like, hey, like these people wouldn't have gotten, like they would have done a credit card and a credit card would have been a higher interest rate. And now they get access to cheaper credit. But it's also pretty easy to make the case of like, you're kind of just giving people credit who shouldn't be get, getting credit they're buying a Peloton. They shouldn't be buying like when they shouldn't be buying a Peloton. Um, and then that's and that's not me saying anything ill of this, but I mean I think they still have done some really profound, um, impactful stuff in their industry. But with our business, we can truly say there was not a single person ever who has signed up with our service who has less money than when they began with. Like if you were not using your four hundred one k match, there is a zero percent chance that we have put you in a worse financial position. It's impossible. Like it is you have strictly and explicitly made money full wow. stop that's amazing i mean that that is quite the pitch and and it seems like you do have case studies and case studies and case studies just to back it up and i think uh whether you are a future user of lentable maybe a future team member of lentable i mean that mission again is is super cool that's awesome and so for for current users for future users for people who hope to one day maybe join you in the team like where can they where can they find you guys like um and where yeah. can they apply if, if they really resonate yeah. with the vibe yeah, yeah. I mean, so so we've got uh, we've got some open kind of engineering headcount roles right now. So lendtable.com. Um, yeah, lendtable, Facebook, LinkedIn, and that's lend and table. Just because some people hear lendable. <laughs> Simple enough. Is there anything that you guys do internally aside from the mission that you're really proud of, or you guys do differently, kind of like the X factor? Um, just in case people in the audience here are like really resonating and with your energy, vibe, and mission, and hope one day to kind of join you in the team and yeah. wonder what life is like. Yeah, I, I mean, in in person team, I think a lot of the things we're doing around kind of culture and building are incredibly kind of paramount to who we are. We've got a very diverse kind of set, set of team members. We serve a very diverse, um, a very diverse, you know, set of users. Like you know. The average person we're working with is the, you know, the trucker in Montana. It's the, you know, like a convenience store worker in uh, California. Like it's, it is a very wide breadth of like the average kind of American. Gotcha. And then is there, um, I guess, any secret or surprise that maybe you can share for the audience of what future products or offerings that you guys and your team are kind of thinking about uh, to kind of give uh, us anything to kind of look forward to that you can probably yeah, talk I, about? I, I, I can I can I can kind of share a bit. So there are some other products we're thinking about. We're super, super excited about. At the end of the day, I think we are just scratching the surface, like one percent of one percent, all of the things that these people have like there are the, the amount of benefits that the average person has is crazy. I mean, we're talking HSAs, which is like a triple tax advantage retirement account. Uh we're talking uh unutilized PTO, equity stock grants, employee stock ownership plans, employee stock option plans. Like there are so many of these different kinds of benefits. Benefits. To me, this is part of what I love about the business. It just, I love financial engineering. I love arbitrages. I love, you know, I, I love saving and investing. I, I I read on this stuff on my free time. I, I find it fun. Um, and it's just cool. It's almost like being a hedge fund manager for like 
your mom and dad of like you know that your mom and dad there's like a hundred and one different ways that they're kind of like fucking up what they're doing because like you know your mom doesn't know how to log into vanguard and your dad's like confused about like you know how many oh, just like any of this like basic stuff and that to me is super super exciting like at the same time you know we've got this mission to kind of help you know help, helping out people helping the world be able to retire um but also like the, the way i see it in some respects, we are the best performing hedge fund of all time. Like, you know, there were all these like, you know, super quants working up at like Citadel and Renaissance and all these incredible, you know, hedge funds and private equity funds who are just like out of their minds smart. But I can guarantee you we are going to start a fund in here that is going to significantly outperform any of them. I love it. I love yeah. it. You know, I, I, I remember making money for the you know deck of billionaires of the world. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, think of like your first early jobs, even mine. I mean, uh, aside from the salary, you're like, what benefits do I get? And you get sometimes this whole list and like the average person doesn't even maybe have heard of thing, uh, one thing, two things, a couple times here and there. But for, I think for the most part, um, it's either overwhelming or you just, just not educated. And and then if you are educated, so a lot of these things are also just complicated, right? They have a lot of different yeah. steps that go into it. So the fact that you're educating people and you're just most, most importantly, making the whole experience like smooth, frictionless, and easy for the average consumer. Think of like the average person in Montana, like, like you alluded to. I think that's really, really, really fascinating. Um, and of course, uh, has it's a phenomenal mission. Are you guys fully in office? Are you guys uh, fully remote? Are you hybrid? What's your philosophy about that? Yeah, so I we're, we're in office. Yeah. Do you and have, then we do you have uh, like just thoughts as to like just the, the uh, larger discussion on... Um, is one better or the other within our industry or do you just yeah i'm, I'm sure there are some companies who are going to do a phenomenal job of building remote remote teams i think for us it's really important to have people in the office you can feel the excitement everyone gets everyone's around kind of the shared mission shared alignment but i think that's that's been really pivotal to our success so far gotcha gotcha and then do you have any insight into just like your leadership or just management philosophy when it comes to just your current team members, future team members joining, like uh, what sort of style or how would you categorize your leadership or your management or your, even your your managers on the team? Um, how do you kind of grow really great managers and just retain that culture? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is around our kind of like core values and core alignment, um, you know, so building that user trust, um, really care about building products that kind of, you know, help people, you know, have like this uh, kind of like quickness to ship, uh, you know, propensity towards like, you know, no idea is too big, really going after kind of big, ambitious, bold bets, and also taking kind of the things that need to happen kind of day to day. So, so I think a lot of it's just like, you know, really realigning around our, our mission, realigning around our values, mm -hmm. um, and the kind of company we want to build. And what's your philosophy of just compensation in general? The context of, of this question is a lot of times yeah, in our industry, just smaller, earlier stage companies like to hope to really draw the right team member yeah. with the mission and then promise of high equity, but then the salary might not be as competitive to market. What's your philosophy on that as a small, fast growing company that's trying to build an awesome team and just a really rocky climate? Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think, you know, comp philosophy is certainly changing day by day at this point, because I think that's what happens when the market's in free fall. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next kind of six months. But I think, you know, to this day, you know, we really uh, kind of had an emphasis on being like a 75th percentile when it kind of comes to compensation and pay. I think, you know, we do not want to be the company that's like, we are offering you the absolute highest of the absolute highest range of, you know, anyone that's kind of offering you. But at the same time, you know, we are looking for people who do have multiple competitive offers, who are phenomenal candidates, who are best in class at their field. And as a result, like you need to pay that premium to bring on the people. So that's been kind of our philosophy of being this kind of like 75th percentile when it comes to compensation. So for the audience who are like, man, after listening to 
all this time on this podcast. Sheridan sounds like an amazing guy, an amazing leader, someone um, with fantastic values and hope to, you know, if they were to ever apply and join your team, they hope to kind of work with you. Yeah. I, I guess the question is for someone like yourself that's started multiple businesses, um, perhaps, you know, a few at the same time, is Lentable your baby for the long term? Or are you looking to kind of scale this to a point and then, you know, I guess, continuing your, your general story arc of your life as a true entrepreneur, uh, maybe perhaps kind of tackling other bigger, larger, different problems. Yeah, or yeah, who knows so, at this point? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think uh, I was kind of mentioning before, I've always ADHD kind of done a lot of these different like products, worked on a bunch of these different things. Uh, and I think what I love about Lentable is I can be ADHD within this broader organization of there are so, so many different like company, like it, it, almost like a, like Amazon, you know, I, I would kind of describe it to them uh, where Amazon, when they started, was just a bookstore. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Jeff Bezos at any point in time felt bored about the lack of new initiatives that Amazon was doing. They've started hundreds of different companies within Amazon. You've got AWS, you've got all the different verticals where they sell, you've got like all of this stuff. Uh, and I feel like we could do the exact same thing with Landtable. We've got this core foundation of being able to make people money. And from that, there's an infinite number of things you can do to build on top of that. So yeah, this is where, I mean, you know, I'd say for better or for worse, this is where I'm, uh, where I'm dug in. I'm, I'm so bullish on just our ability to fundamentally change people's retirement picture, people's wealth, uh, you know, the way in which people save and invest. I'm excited for your future. What What is an advice that you would give uh, to other founders who are listening in, who are building in this market, that are concerned about, you know, the future of what might happen? Um, is this something that just, you don't even think about? You're like, hey, I'm, I need to, I need my team to know exactly what we need to do and keep your heads down. Yeah. Or like, what what can they do uh, for their? Yeah, businesses? I mean, I think it would be, I think it would be a mistake not to think about it in this environment. I think it depends on the kind of company. Like, if you're if you have a lot of cash in the bank and you're not burning a lot, um, and you're not beholden on investors, great. If you are, I think it's important to be conservative now, uh, to recognize we're coming out of a. Uh, you know, monetary uh, environment where there was all this free money. And as a result, if your business does mildly well, you'll have access to more capital in the future. That is not the case now. You know, the, the broader market is changing week by week. So it's impossible to say, you know, will investors be investing in companies six months from now? Maybe, maybe not. And I think future-proofing the business to make sure that regardless of what happens in the broader market, you're insulated and you can continue building the company is super important. And practically what, what that might mean is be conservative with your cash, maybe hold off on growth. Yeah. And those are like the big things to be cognizant of. And then what about those who are listening in, perhaps they're, you know, freelancers, independent contractors, owners of small businesses um, who might not have access to 401k. Perhaps it's either something that you're thinking about or maybe your other future offerings can be hopefully relevant or provide value to them as well. Yeah. Instead yeah, yeah. Of just current employers who have 401k. I'll, I'll give some like broad recommendations of like, you can look at I bonds. Those are paying out like 7% interest rate right now, just, just higher than the risk-free rate. You can look at HSAs and FSAs. You can offer yourself your own 401k. I would just do a comprehensive look and just like look up like what benefits do I have access to when I work insert X job. And a lot of the times there's some relatively simple kind of financial engineering stuff you can do to make money. Make sure you have money parked in your 401k. You know, if you're paying money to like a very expensive wealth manager, consider not doing that and just consider sticking your money in an ETF and calling it a day. Those would be some of the general recommendations I'd have. If people want to reach out to you for advice, if they want to follow you, do you have um, anywhere that you can point them to? Yeah. So you can do Sheridan at lendtable.com. Or if you want to text me, 224-392-3892. Feel free to text me. Wow. You heard, the, 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 you heard it from Sheridan himself, guys. 
his actual number. That's amazing. That's my that's my actual that's my personal phone number. I don't have <laughs> actually I do have two phones recently, but I haven't used the other phone number before. So wow, I appreciate that. And um, one of our favorite ways, you know, coming to a close of this podcast, and I just want to again share, uh, uh, just really really thank you so much for the time that you're putting into this, and and just being raw and humble and just honest about your experience. It's absolutely fascinating. It's really super super inspirational. If someone like wanted to kind of follow in your footsteps. And whether it's having a successful career, having a successful career, not as just a professional, but as a serial entrepreneur, even as a first-time founder, what is like the go-to biggest advice overarching that you can share? I mean, I'd say for a first-time go-to founder, it's just do the thing. Like if you have some startup idea, just do it. Just just try. Like, like, like the best thing you can do, especially early on in your career, is just like go after doing a startup. Don't worry about failure. If anything to me, the biggest failure is like not trying to do a company. Like that's real failure. Like if you're just like, you know, you got nervous, you got anxious, you never actually tried anything. That's really failing. But like you trying some idea that has a 10% chance of working and it not working, that's not failing. You're just like, you know, flipping a coin and eventually it's going to come up heads. So yeah, that'd be like the biggest record. I also moved to San Francisco. If you're trying <laughs> to do a venture back startup, move to San Francisco as quickly as you possibly can. I guess. Okay. That just leads me to have to ask you one more question. What is your biggest pitch? If someone's in tech, startup founder, what is the biggest pitch of San Francisco in case people are curious? Density of talent. Um, mm. Like this is, I, I've been in, I've been in New York. I've been in Chicago. I've been in Miami. You just have the greatest concentration of founders who are at the early stages of, of concentration of investors, of concentration of engineers. You go to a party here and everyone's talking about their startup and it can be a little nauseating and mind numbing. But if your goal is to be around startup founders, this is the best possible place you could be. Hands That's down. Amazing. Sheridan, thank you so much. I know there's only so much you can go over in 90 minutes, but uh, from you sharing stories of your childhood, your relationship your, with your father, how your father was a role model, to then how you worked at really great establishments from Dropbox to banking and to all these different sort of companies that you started along the way and now growing your current company, Table. I am very inspired, uh, frankly, from our conversation. And I think it's really cool for someone like yourself that has started multiple businesses to be landed on a company like Lentable with a huge, huge mission that really will resonate with a lot of people and truly uh, can back it up when I say that they help not just the employees win, but government, but also the company's employers as well. So I am personally really excited to see what Unity Team will do, not just for the main of this year, but for the next few to five years. I'm also personally excited to see a lot of the future products and services you guys will come out with. And I wish you nothing but tremendous success. And a small part of me is also excited to see what you're going to do, perhaps one day after Lend Table as well. I appreciate you. I'm excited to see what you do too. You did a great job moderating. This is awesome. Thank you so much. And again, for the audience for listening, feel free to reach out to Sheridan. Uh, feel free to also reach out to him via his number. Please don't spam and be respectful. But Sheridan, to you and your team, thank you so much again. Congratulations for everything you've done. Love your mission. Love your product. And we'll certainly keep in touch. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe for other great stories that are coming up. If you need any help with hiring, know of anyone who's looking for a job, or would like to be a guest on this podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at www.kickstartfinder.com. Really, really appreciate it, and we'll see you on the next one.